am going to be making the case that uh, surveillance is an area that effective altruists don't tend to think that much about. Uh, but it's potentially an area that we should be thinking a lot more about, especially if we care about the long-run future. Um, so the way I'm going to make this case is, uh, first, I'm going to describe two ways in which the future of surveillance can be quite bad. Um, then I'm going to describe a more positive future um, and argue that uh, this isn't something that appears very frequently in discussions of surveillance, uh, but something that plausibly um, more people in effective altruism ought to be thinking about. Okay, so um, first, here are a couple of outcomes we don't want for the future of surveillance. Um, on the left, we have a depiction of what seems to be um, perhaps uh, a bit of a violation of privacy or not as much accountability as you'd want for your system of surveillance. On the right, we seem to have um, perhaps some sort of oversight. Um, seems like a, a significant security issue is unfolding that perhaps you, we wanted like, a little bit more intense surveillance to prevent. Um, to sort of describe the, the first scenario in uh, less of a caricature, uh, the sort of concern here is that um, currently um, governments are collecting a very large amount of data about individuals all over the world. Uh, this seems to be increasing over time. Um, everything we do online uh, mostly ends up collected. Uh, people are walking around with things in their pockets, uh, which, are which have microphones and cameras and GPS locators. Um, surveillance cameras are becoming more prevalent, and it just seems like, in general, uh, we should expect the amount of data collected on individuals to keep going up over time. Uh, probably more importantly, uh, the ability to use this data is also going up as well. Uh, partly this is a better a matter of better analysis, uh, better data mining to identify individuals from mass collected data, things of that nature. Uh, partly it's a matter of uh, being able to more efficiently use uh, the information which is gleaned from data mining. Um, so just one quick example, which is fairly benign but somewhat suggestive. Um, in recent years, it's become um, somewhat common in some provinces in China to use facial recognition cameras to do things like um, automatically recognize people who are jaywalking and automatically find them. Um, a bit of a, a slightly longer-term thing is the idea of a social credit score. Uh, this is the idea of um, using uh, large amounts of data collected about people, um, including, for example, their social media postings um, or the crimes they commit, and using this to assign people a score, um, which will affect their employment prospects, uh, their ability to travel or get into certain schools. Um, and although uh, none of this stuff is yet, um, I would say, very significant, uh, there's some suggestion that um, in the long-run future, or if you let this go for just a few more decades, uh, we may see um, much more um, strong versions of uh, social incentive shaping and much more invasive forms of surveillance. Um, in the long run, you might be more concerned about uh, countries being more authoritarian or just political institutions we care about working less well. Uh, the other category of risk that you might be concerned about is um, the sort of ineffectual surveillance scenario. The uh, sort of argument for this concern is that um, in the future it may be the case that uh, methods of causing large amounts of harm become a lot cheaper um, or easier to use. Um, so at the moment, if uh, let's say you're an individual with um, sort of unusual motives or bad motives and you want to hurt a lot of people, it's not that easy to do that, um, to hurt more than let's say a few hundred people. Um, but this is to some extent probably uh, a matter of what technology is available. Um, some people have suggested that, for instance, uh, synthetic biology, um, given perhaps a few decades, um, may make it easy for uh, relatively small groups of people to design pathogens that can harm very large numbers. Um, other technologies which are sometimes discussed with this sort of narrative are um, cheap drone swarms, um, in the sort of longer-term future, nanoweapons, or potentially especially disruptive cyber weapons. Um, it's not necessarily clear that any of these individual technologies is extremely likely to sort of have this property of making it very cheap to cause large amounts of harm. Um, but we can sort of uh, draw an analogy to sort of suggest uh, what the significance of these technologies would be. Um, so suppose that it turned out to be the case that nuclear weapons were much cheaper to make than they in fact are. 
um, say that um, rather than requiring uh, massive state programs and um, years and years of work, that um, anyone could fairly easily construct nuclear weapons from household materials. It seems like in a world of that sort, um, the odds that they wouldn't be used uh, would be very, very low, and you'd likely need some uh, very pervasive form of surveillance to actually catch people who were planning to cause this large amount of harm. Um, so we don't know that any future technology um, will sort of have these properties, but it seems not entirely impossible that one might, and if that's the case, then we'll want probably um, much more effective forms of surveillance. Uh, so something which is uh, typically a part of uh, discussions of surveillance is this sort of trade-off narrative. Um, so on the one hand, there's this idea that um, the more you protect people's privacy, uh, the less you allow governments to actually protect people's security. And on the other hand, there's this idea that uh, the more you make governments accountable, sort of let people know what they're up to, uh, the less effectively governments will be able to operate. Um, so sort of to explain or justify the uh, privacy security trade-off, let's take the case of um, uh, someone who's carrying a bag that may or may not have a bomb in it, um, and consider a police officer who'd like to know if it has a bomb who doesn't have any tools available to them. It seems like their two options um, are to, um, first of all, they can potentially open up the bag and look at what's inside, see if there's a bomb. Uh, but in the process, they'll figure out everything else that's in the bag, and some of this might be quite personally revealing. Um, on the other hand, they can choose not to open the bag and therefore not violate the person's privacy. Um, but in choosing not to open the bag, they also don't learn whether or not there's a bomb inside. Uh, the accountability security trade-off, um, the idea here is that... Um, Let's say take the case of a protocol which is used to select people for search or um, a special scrutiny. Um, we may want to know that the protocol is actually being followed, that um, an individual isn't deviating from it. We may also want to know um, what exactly the details of the protocol are. Um, is it something which is discriminatory? Is it something which is fair? Uh, does it have a sufficiently high accuracy rate? Um, a case which is often made by governments to sort of keep their protocol secret is to argue that um, if you make the details of the pro uh, protocol public, uh, then people can figure out how to get around it, and it becomes much less effective. Um, so this trade-off narrative seems to suggest that um, steering away from one risk means steering towards the other. Um, even if you have the mindset that only one of these two risks is actually credible or of significant importance, other than the fact that other people care about the other risk uh, means that there will be political constraints on pursuing solutions to one risk or the other. As uh, sort of an extreme caricature, um, let's say that you're someone who doesn't care about privacy at all, you think that the risk from authoritarianism um, isn't in any way important, and you think it would be really great if the government put cameras in um, every single person's home and watched them all the time. Um, the fact that other people are definitely not cool with that um, and care about privacy means that that would just be a non-starter as a solution. Um, so in general, it seems like the more severe the trade-off is between these values, um, the more concerned we should be about either risk or both risks together. Um, this all seems to suggest that um, a useful thing to do would be to look for opportunities to reduce these two trade-offs. Uh, this means looking for ways to make uh, surveillance more accountable and privacy-preserving. Um, while this sounds a bit idealistic, we can get some intuition that this is possible um, by looking at different forms of surveillance which are applied today. And they definitely, definitely vary quite significantly in how much they protect people's privacy. Uh, so if we return again to the case of a, bomb, of a bag that may or may not have a bomb in it, um, suppose that instead of just opening the bag, a police officer has access to a bomb-sniffing dog. Um, in this case, they can have the dog come up to a bag, sniff it. Um, if it barks, they open the bag and search. If it doesn't bark, they don't. Um, in the idealized case where the dog has perfect accuracy rate, they only learn exactly what's relevant for security. Does a person have a bomb? Uh, but they don't violate people's privacy in any other way. Um, and the more accurate it is, the less it violates people's privacy. At the same time, this is also a fairly accountable form of surveillance. Um, if you have your bag on you, you can tell that a dog was used rather than just a person rifling through it. Um, you can also tell whether the do dog barked. Um, it's difficult to lie that a dog has barked when it hasn't, because you can hear it. 
Yeah, um, so that's a sort of a specific case, a more sort of abstract case for optimism, is that um, in the future, it's likely to be the case that um, surveillance and law enforcement becomes more heavily automated. Uh, while this has a number of uh, scary components to it, um, there's also some reasons to think that this trend may actually make it easier to ensure privacy and accountability. Um, so here's some uh, basic advantages of automation. Uh, so first of all, if you automate an analysis task that would ordinarily be performed by a human, then you can use uh, software as a screen between um, data and the humans who see it. So the analogy is to a sniffing dog again. Um, if you have some piece of software which looks at data and makes some initial judgment of whether to search further, um, then potentially a human doesn't need to look at data that they would otherwise look at. Um, you can also potentially redact sensitive information automatically so that no human ever needs to see it. So one concrete example would be um, automatic face blurring of faces that appear in uh, police body camera footage. In certain regards, um, algorithms are also um, more predictable and less opaque than humans. Um, to some extent, AI is often a black box, um, but it's less of a black box than the human brain is. Um, you can't really look at a, like a human police officer's brain to sort of see what's going on there, but you can often look at the source code for software. Um, it's also often easier to associate um, things that are done with software with reliable audit logs, as opposed to, let's say, trusting human analysts to record what they're up to. Um, software is also less likely to engage in certain abuses uh, that a human might. So one um, slightly disturbing example of this is um, uh, there's this concept, um, at least in the past, hopefully not in the present, within the NSA um, of Lovent, um, where this is uh, short for love intelligence. Uh, the idea is looking at information on a significant other or an ex. Um, and this was apparently common enough that they had jargon for it within the NSA. Um, seems like something weird has happened if software that you've designed is doing that. Um, <laughs> Um, same time, um, if you're using software in place of humans, it also potentially becomes um, um, easier and more uh, efficient to automate a single piece of software as opposed to um, auditing um, lots of different humans who might be replicating its behavior. So if you're using a single piece of software in lots of different cases, um, then potentially you just look at the single piece as opposed to um, lots of different human analysts and officers and officials um, who might be deviating from protocols. Um, it's also easier to associate a piece of software which is applied in lots of different cases with um, summary statistics, for example, an accuracy rate, uh, compared to using statistics for humans. So I think this is actually like a, a large issue currently um, with, um, yeah, basically surveillance and law enforcement at the moment, is that it seems like intuitively, um, if you're establishing probable cause or reasonable suspicion, it's sort of like a probability threshold for that, of um, exactly how accurate is, uh, for example, an officer's judgment that someone meets these thresholds, um, what portion of the time are they right? For an individual officer, this isn't uh, extremely feasible to collect these statistics. But if, we're, for example, you're using a facial recognition system, you can actually have fairly good data on exactly how accurate it is. You can actually have a fairly informed discussion about um, what sort of false positive rate is too high. That's a bit hard to have for humans. A couple of um, less obvious advantages um, are that increasing automation can actually decrease the need for data, data collection. Um, and that increasing automation can um, decrease the disruptiveness of engaging in auditing. Um, so the idea for surveillance without data collection, the basic idea is um, certain cryptographic technologies uh, make it possible to analyze data or extract um, certain pieces of information from it uh, without collecting the data in unencrypted form. Um, probably the most notable one um, is a technology called secure multi-party computation, uh, which is extremely general um, and recently, just in the past decade or so, um, became much more practical to use. Um, a couple of examples of how this technology can be used. Uh, so the first is the idea of a set intersection search. Um, so this is, uh, comes up fairly commonly in law enforcement contexts where you want to identify someone as suspicious on the basis of the fact that they show up in a few different data databases. Uh, so one concrete example is um, uh, say someone robs a few different banks. Um, police know it's the same person, but they don't know who it was. 
uh, they might want to search the cell records for the cell towers that were near um, all three of the banks to see if anyone made calls uh, near all three of them. The way you would traditionally do this, and the way this actually historically has been done, is to collect all of the records from these three cell towers, get tens of thousands of people's records, um, and then comb through them to see if any name pops up three times. Um, but it's actually possible to do this without collecting um, uh, mass collecting records in this way. Uh, so there's a paper in 2014 uh, that shows how to conduct a search of this sort um, where you get out a list of names that appear in all three of these databases, uh, but you don't get any other information besides just those names. So rather than collecting tens of thousands of people's information, you collect maybe one or two. Uh, another example is fraud detection. Um, so uh, for the case of value-added fraud detection, one way you sometimes do this is um, by finding discrepancies between different companies' private financial records. Uh, one, let's say, reports a purchase um, that doesn't match another country's report of a sale. Um, there's a paper in 2015 um, that describes a protocol that I believe has actually now been used by the Estonian government to find um, cases of tax fraud of this sort without collecting companies' private financial records. Uh, they get this output of um, here are the discrepancies, but they don't actually get any um, unencrypted records um, sort of taken in uh, so they can't learn anything else other than just um, who is showing discrepancies. Um, another example, which I'm uh, also not gonna get, going to get into the technical details of, um, is this idea uh, traceable to a paper by Joshua Kroll in 2016 uh, to use a cryptographic technology called zero-knowledge proofs uh, to produce um, accountable algorithms. The basic upshot is that he shows uh, that it's possible, um, in many cases, uh, to prove to the public that a protocol that's received auditor approval is still being applied, that um, people aren't strained from it, and also that the protocol has certain desirable formal properties, for example, fairness properties, without actually making it public what the details of the protocol are. Um, so that's desirable if um, the reason for not making the um, details of a protocol public are that um, you can say, oh, if we made them public, people could get around it. Um, or potentially you're a law enforcement agency and um, you can't make the details public because um, some private company has developed it for you and it's quite profitable. Um, so this is a way of making things more accountable while dodging those objections that um, making yourself more accountable would make you less effective. Um, so in my um, fairly non-expert view, um, I see sort of a few opportunities um, for things effective altruists could potentially add to the conversation around surveillance. Um, so one is uh, that, in my opinion, the conversation is typically too focused on uh, managing trade-offs. So for example, debating um, exactly you know, how much security you can get by trading away this amount of privacy, or sometimes uh, denying that these trade-offs exist to any extent, which seems implausible. Um, rather, I think it would be more useful to um, look ahead to technical solutions for actually sort of reducing these trade-offs. Um, another concern I have is that a lot of the conversation concerns uh, current programs or programs which are just getting off the ground. I think it would also be productive to have a conversation about what forms of surveillance we might want to be moving toward, let's say over um, a 10 or 20 year period, um, as new risks emerge um, and also as new technologies make different forms of surveillance feasible. Um, and then the last one is that I think uh, discussions of surveillance are often um, sort of uh, rely on um, assumptions about technology which aren't actually true or are going to become less true in the future. Uh, so a classic one is just that analyzing data actually requires collecting data, um, which isn't actually technically true. Uh, one last comment is that this uh, presentation has been all about um, sort of mass surveillance. Uh, but what, a lot of what I've said also applies to the case of agreement verification in an international relations context. Um, so the idea here is that frequently you want to verify compliance with an agreement, let's say an arms agreement, um, but often um, the process of monitoring a country or verifying compliance um, involves collecting lots of information, which is um, sort of revealing in a way which is viewed as negative. Uh, so for example, it gives away the details of weapon systems 
or allows countries access to um, private actors' labs that might be indicative of uh, sort of valuable intellectual property. Um, and if you can find ways to make sort of more privacy-preserving uh, forms of monitoring in the same way you can make more privacy-preserving forms of surveillance, uh, then this could potentially reduce a bottleneck um, on sort of the ability to actually reach international agreements. And this is also something that seems to intersect a lot with existing effective altruist concerns around global catastrophic risks and governance of emerging technologies. Uh, so just in closing... Um, in the future, surveillance might uh, threaten institutions uh, that we care about, or it might fail to protect us from new threats. Um, it seems like uh, there's some sort of trade-off between addressing these risks, uh, but these trade-offs also don't seem to be immutable. Um, there's some hope that in the future, technological progress can help reduce these for us. Um, so therefore, it seems like uh, the project of pursuing accountable privacy-preserving surveillance, um, while not something that many people are engaging in at the moment, uh, might be something that more effective altruists want to look into or um, signal boost in conversations around surveillance. Um, I'm going to be giving, uh, I believe, in office hours at 10.30 uh, a.m. tomorrow if anyone wants to talk more about that. And I'm also just generally free to talk if anyone has any interest. Yeah, thank you so much.